Good morning. My name is Jim Grossman. I serve here as pastoral intern, and I'm glad to preach this morning as I continue along in my internship. I'd like to pray first today and ask for understanding and then read the text. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for your help for us all today. I ask that you would give us eyes to see as we read your word, ears to hear and listen to it, and minds to understand what you have to teach us by your word and your spirit today. We ask this in your name, Father, by your spirit. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, page 713 in the Church Bibles, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. During those days, another loud crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmatha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? Now, here in Mark, we have the context we had just went over. And if you look back at chapter 6, we have the Herod account. From that into the feeding of the five thousand. Then Jesus walks on water and tells them not to be afraid, to be of good cheer. And then chapter 7, they run across the Pharisees, and Jesus rebuking and teaching. Next, the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter seeing a picture of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And then as he leaves Tyre, healing a deaf and mute man. And Jesus 
shows the gospel in a very dramatic way, opening the ears and loosening the tongue by putting his fingers into the man's ear and into his mouth and looking to heaven where our help comes from. And now here we are with a second feeding miracle. They had already seen 5,000 be fed, and now they're about to see 4,000 be fed. Here, Jesus is teaching them a lesson by example. He gave them the same lesson earlier on when he fed the 5,000 and they didn't get it. Chapter 6, verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. And that's important to look at sometimes because Jesus teaches us in our lives by example. Sometimes God will give us a teaching moment and not require us what we're intended to learn because of the hardness of our heart. And he'll allow us to move forward with a hardened heart and he'll still come to us in the midst of the storm and say, be of good cheer. And then he will give us real-life examples, like with the Pharisees and then the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf and mute man. And we see a comeback here to that same teaching moment. Jesus hadn't required the disciples to learn about the first feeding miracle. He didn't push the issue, even though 6, verse 52, their hearts were hardened about it. And he gave them almost the exact same situation over again. Have you ever had that happen? I, I know that I have. Has God ever given you something to learn and you didn't get it? And then in the meantime, you saw a couple examples, good examples, and you're seeing things you needed to learn and you know it, and then God drops in your lap the same exact situation to teach you whatever you had missed the first time. Now, this time, Jesus isn't only teaching them about the principle of rest, which was a main theme uh, in the text that I preached when I preached on the 5,000. Here he is also expounding upon everything that just happened, and it's culminating into an example where Jesus will then give them a warning, he, a caution. He'll ask them questions to reveal their hearts, to reveal where they're at in their understanding. He's going to ask them hard questions. He's going to ask them real questions, questions that matter, questions that we need to ask ourselves. Two crowds, two responses. Okay, so the first thing before we get to those questions are the two groups of people. The first group is the crowd who had gathered and had been with him for three days. And we have to ask, what did Jesus think of them? Again, as in the first account, he had compassion on them. He doesn't want them to go away hungry, collapse, and have a bad experience afterwards. So he feeds them. And in feeding them, he shows them a miracle of feeding he shows that he can provide and provide sustenance and that he can provide rest and he provides what they need, even maybe a principle of work and provision for the disciples. And then the second group, the Pharisees, once again, after the feeding miracle, just like last time, they come and gather around Jesus and they have questions to ask. Now that word in verse 11, question, they began to question Jesus in English the word question is a little weak. In Greek, it, the word is stronger, and it doesn't mean just a simple inquiry. This is a stronger type of questioning. It's multiple questions. One Greek lexicon said they were haranguing him. They really want to get to the matter of what they think the heart of the matter is. They want to test him. And so his response to the Pharisees is not the same as to the crowd. His response to the Pharisees is that he sighs deeply, turns around and he says, you're not going to get a sign. And he gets in the boat and he leaves them. So here, 
we have these two different groups in the way that Jesus handles them. He's kind to the one group and to the other group, not so much. And here, it's a, the matter of the heart. It's evidence that it matters how you approach Jesus. And here, Jesus is cautioning the disciples about approach, about approach to his message, approach to God, and approach to life. And he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod because the approach of these two groups was very different from the approach of the people who came and listened to Jesus' voice, people who wanted to come and listen to him speak, people who came and listened to him for three days and ended up not having any food. They have been so hungry they would have collapsed from exhaustion. That's how much they wanted to listen to Jesus and what he had to say rather than a group coming to him wanting to control the conversation with questions and getting an answer that they want to hear. And so Jesus tells his disciples to beware of the Pharisees and Herod and the leaven of their approach, the yeast that can work its way through a whole batch of dough. So a warning and a caution on the two approaches of man. And when Jesus warns the disciples, he doesn't warn them about the crowd and then the Pharisees and gives them these two approaches. So the two approaches to coming Jesus, coming to Jesus in my first point are not the two approaches in my second point. Jesus doesn't warn the disciples and contrast the 5,000 with the Pharisees. No, he contrasts, he cautions them against two bad approaches. So it's not like he gives two approaches, one good, one bad, follow the good, don't follow the bad, because that's not the gospel. It isn't a moralistic approach to right living. Jesus is concerned with the heart. So Jesus says in his warning, here's two bad approaches, don't do either of these. Don't do the yeast of either of these because of what they do to the bread. Think about what yeast does to bread. Yeast fundamentally alters the chemistry of the bread. It changes the texture, changes the body of the bread drastically. It does these things, making it a different product altogether, and it only takes a little bit to work its whole way through. So watch out. Jesus is concerned here with their hearts, and he's cautioning them telling them to be careful. In the Old Testament, right away with humanity, you had Cain. And God comes and tells Cain, if you did what is right, wouldn't you be accepted? But be careful. Sin is crouching at your doorstep, and it desires to master over you. And when God is telling this to Cain, he's not just saying it in like a factual sort of theological way. He doesn't go into like a Pauline discussion on sin He doesn't say, well, sin separates you from God, sin separates you from me, and the wages of it are death. And he doesn't go into like a full treatise on how sin works. Instead, he personifies it. He gives it imagery. He talks about it being ready to pounce on you, like like a coiled snake waiting to spring on you, like like a lion roaring around in the weeds, a panther in the bushes that wants to pounce on you, and it's waiting at your doorstep. Be careful. So Jesus here is telling the disciples, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. He knows the deceitfulness of the heart. He knows the true nature of sin. And he's not here being some kind of a modern hippie Jesus that just cares and loves about everybody. He's giving caution. He's not simply showing compassion on the crowd. He did that. He was compassionate. He is long-suffering. He is forgiving. He has the character of God. The Son here is showing them the Father's character. 
But as R.C. Sproul pointed out on his commentary in this section of Scripture, God's patience and forbearance, nowhere does it say that his patience is infinite. Here, Jesus just kind of slapped his hand on his forehead and deeply sighed and said, I'm not giving you an answer, and walked away. So there's not, not this picture of the same compassion he had towards the crowd. There's more of a reaching of the patience of God. If you won't listen to the good news, then I've got nothing else to tell you. The patience and kindness of God is offered to everyone. Mercy is offered to everyone. Grace, common grace, is given to all. Mercy is offered, but you have to accept the sacrifice. You have to repent and believe to be one of his children. And so he's warning the disciples on the boat because he knows the depth and depravity of the human soul. He was there when Cain murdered his brother. Remember, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and became flesh. That's Jesus. And he knows that whether something is legal or illegal, whether it's allowed or we're told not to do it, that whatever we need to do that act, whatever tools we need, we're going to get them. Because it's not watching TV that makes us immoral. And it's not playing video games that makes us immoral. It's not even our brains or our growing up or our upbringing that forces us to do things. It's not that. It's our will. It's our hearts that make us evil. It's our choice and our wrong desire that when each one of us is tempted, is dragged away by our own evil desire. And when we do them, our evil desires, they become full-grown and we sin and that gives birth to death. That's the human condition. That's carnal man. When carnal man acts as carnal man, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't be overly surprising for the Christian. That's a basic doctrine. That is, man is fallen, and we can't save ourselves from our fallenness, from our wickedness, from doing the wrong things that we don't want to do, and from not even being able to do the right things that we do want to do. Paul talks about that as a wretched state. What a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of sin and death. What does Paul say? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, even for the Christian, Paul continues, sin in this world is not yet eradicated. He continues, so then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So you have Jesus here in Mark 8. You have Jesus here in Mark 8, understanding the depth of the depravity of man. He taught about it in Mark 7 telling us where uncleanliness comes from. It comes from within. Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Those ones are like the duh sins. But also greed, malice, hatred towards somebody, deceit, tricking people into your way, lewdness, basically just being plain old gross, envy, wanting what other people have, slander, talking bad about other people, arrogance, thinking... You know you've got it all down. You've got it down right. You're the one who's right and everyone else is wrong. And folly, that's just plain foolishness. Proverbs 12.1 speaks of it a little harsher. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. And all of these evils named come from inside. Mark 7, verse 23, Jesus understood this. Now to the modern mind, that might not really seem uh, all that smart. It might seem to not take into account all the complexities of life. And definitely to the postmodern mind in the context that we're living in, our culture, we're resistant to the truth, or at least someone telling us what they think the truth is. The modern lingo is instead about speaking your truth. We want everyone to be able to hold their own ideas and be able to speak their truth. 
We want everyone to say, well, I, I know that you believe that, but I don't believe that, and well, all of that is okay. But even secular psychologists and philosophers, I mean, you have the philosopher and psychologist Carl Jung. He was a contemporary of Freud. People talk about Freudians psychology or Jungian, and one of the things that Carl Jung posited was that you had to incorporate your shadow. You had to incorporate your dark side. What he meant by that was you had to recognize it for what it was. He was born in July of 1875. He died in June of 1961, and most of his work happened between 1920 and 1940, roughly, some after 1940 as well, but that was his context. And so he watched some of the worst changes in history. He saw both world wars. He saw the atrocities that man could commit. And he realized there's a shadow in man. The way he said it was this, was that the shadow reaches down to the depths of hell. And what he was speaking about was realizing that every man has the capacity to commit heinous evils. That if you ignore the evil, if you ignore the shadow, and you don't try and incorporate that into your being, you don't try and manage that, you don't try and do something with that, and you even refuse to recognize it, then you won't realize that you have the capacity to do any of the things that they did back in that time. You won't realize that you're capable, equally capable, of being the worst of sinners or committing any of the atrocious war crimes on either side by any of the regimes, the millions snuffed out by evil. Any of the evil things people are doing today, and you see it on the news, if you don't realize the truth that you have the ability to be that wicked that all of these evils, Mark 7.23, come from inside a man, then you're unwilling to recognize the truth. The truth that even philosophers, by common grace, can point out that man has the ability to be depraved. And if you don't recognize that truth, you will probably elevate yourself to an unhealthy state. Not probably, you will. And it might not look as sinister as you think. Jesus asks the hard questions and he cautions against wrong idols, wrong ways of living. Ways of living that might not look as sinister as you think. That look like even good ways to live, but they aren't. They lead down a long and dark path. They are yeast that will fundamentally change the structure of being, and it will only take a little bit of them to do it. Jesus warns about two approaches. The first one he tells them to be careful of is the approach of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' approach to God was to try and justify themselves by the law. This is all of chapter 7. They weren't actually really caring about the law, though. Jesus makes that clear. He said they were setting aside the command of God, the law, for their own traditions, and they do many things like that. So what is it called if you take the law and make an addition to it? What is that called? What do you call the extra requirement that you make that people are to follow? A rule, right? Mark 7, verse 7, coming from Isaiah. Their teachings are but rules taught by man. A good example is the way Jews won't say Yahweh. It's the Lord's name, and the commandment is not to take the name in vain. Well, how will you be sure you never take the name in vain? If you never say it, you can't take it in vain. So whenever the Pharisee would come across the name Yahweh, they would instead say Adonai, which means Lord. It's called drawing a fence around the law, a second command or rule to follow so that you don't break the first. Or, like chapter 7, take a good commandment for the priests only, and then pervert it with the second one, apply it to everyone, making your own tradition of ceremonial hand-washing. Eventually this leads to a letting go of the commands of God and holding on to the traditions of men. Chapter 7, verse 8, it is a yeast 
an infection that fundamentally changes the body of worship, the mind of the worshiper, and altogether the practice. It's no longer about the intent of the law, so long as you can follow the letter of the law, and the added teaching of rules, chapter 7, verse 7, teaching that are rules taught by men. They're very hard to see sometimes, and that's what makes them so sinister. It seems so small a point to make, maybe. Like, why not give the Pharisees Christian liberty to do that? What's so bad about a commitment to their teaching? It seems so small. But yeast is small. Remember that. What they taught looked a lot like the law, like the command. And the stated intent of what they said they were teaching, their stated intent was so that we follow the first law, the law from God. I mean, do you think the Pharisees were saying, don't follow the scriptural command, instead follow our rules? Or do you think the Pharisees were saying, follow the scriptural command and make sure you follow it by doing these extra additions? Because that is how you relate to God, by following his commands. They could even pervert Jesus' own words against him and say, if you loved God, you would keep his commands. That's true. But by his commands, they meant his commands plus their rules, chapter 7, verse 7. This whole portion of text here, the broader principles we're talking about here in Mark 8 by Jesus are explained in chapters 6 and chapter 7. Here it is, chapter 6. The Pharisees are chapter 7, and he's looking back, asking his disciples the hard questions. He's saying, don't you remember chapter 6? Don't you remember chapter 7? He isn't actually saying chapter 6 and 7. They weren't written yet. But the events had happened. And he's asking, didn't you see everything that happened? Did you see it with your eyes? Yes. Then why don't you understand? Did you hear it with your ears? Then why haven't you listened? Did you see and hear about John being beheaded by Herod after you went preaching on the road? Did you see me feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Did you hear what I said to the Pharisees? Did you see me talk with the Syrophoenician women? woman? Did you hear what I said to her? Did you see me heal the deaf and mute man? Did you see me put my fingers in his ears? Do you have ears, but you don't hear? This whole portion of text here, the broader principle we're talking about in Mark 8, Jesus, by way of questioning, is applying it to his disciples. And I don't mean to apply it just to the 12. Specifically, he was doing that in verses 15 to 21. But by his disciples, I mean us, people who follow Jesus. And Jesus was cautioning the 12. And now here we are reading it. And we are to take the principles taught by Jesus to them and apply it to ourselves. We have to bridge the gap and apply these biblical gospel principles to ourselves. That the rules that are teachings taught by men and the traditions given so that they did synagogue and temple worship right, church if you will, had let go of the commands of God and held on to the traditions of men. Chapter 7, verse 8, we need to be cautioned that that is not the gospel. We can set up the way we do things, the way we run them, the way we decide we think is right, and we might see problems or maybe just potential problems for life, work, worship, whatever it may be, and we see that and we say, let's safeguard ourselves against doing it wrong. Let's make some rules. And that doesn't sound that terrible stated that way, but done wrong, it's yeast. It's small, but it matters. It fundamentally matters because just a little bit of it can work its whole way through and fundamentally change the structure of the way we run our lives, our worship, and our work, our time here on earth. Have you followed the commands? Yes, I've done them since I was a child. You lack one thing. 
Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. With the rich young ruler, Jesus was demonstrating that you see it's about the heart. It's about whether you like a certain way of things and so you follow that way because you like it, the rules, patterns, and traditions of men, or because you follow a certain way because your heart is right and you do it out of love for the gospel, which is salvation by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift. The pharisaical teaching sounds similar to the law because the baseline of the rule of law is there, which is good, but the reason for following it is what makes it fundamentally different. It's what separates the Pharisees from Jesus. And for us, whenever we follow a rule-bound pattern or law or tradition out of a wrong heart like the Pharisees, who thought it was what made them justified before God, whenever we follow traditions because it makes us feel right and good, it gives us a sense of accomplishment or rightness with God, then we're getting it all wrong. And it's a caution to watch out. Be careful. Don't do it. Rule-bound patterns and traditions will get you nowhere. They are not the heart of Jesus. Or second caution. We can set things up for positive-sounding goals. We can do as Herod and build the temple. Finished his father's work, helped the Jews build the temple. We can like to hear the word and then do many good things. Herod liked to look good. He liked to appease everyone. And it backed him into a corner, one he thought he couldn't get himself out of. And so he has John beheaded. He's in a weird way all about the incentives. He likes the good-sounding things. He liked to listen to John. Yet he also liked the praise of men for doing what looked like good deeds. Anything Herod did was not to follow the rules or buffet himself or deny his own desires like the Pharisees. Everything he did was to benefit himself. All his motivation was for whatever incentive it earned him, whether that was money, sex, power, or praise all while trying to make himself look like the good guy by being religiously affiliated and helping the temple, the church, if you will. Maybe that's easier to see. I like to go to church on Sunday. It makes me feel good. I like to do whatever I please at night, whatever makes me feel like I had a good week. I got to do X, Y, and Z, and now I'm having a good week. I screwed up, but I felt bad, and so it's okay. And now I'm at church again, supporting it, paying for the temple, trying to do many good things. And maybe that doesn't sound that sinister either when you say it that way, but it is yeast too. And it will change the structure of how you process life, who life is for, and what worship, work, and life are for. So Jesus said, be careful. Watch out. Don't get caught in the yeast of thinking you're doing it right by not breaking any laws, by following all the right traditions. Don't think that's where it's at. Watch out. Don't think you can live for the enjoyment of the good only and not care how you live so long as you try and make it up to God afterwards. Both the Pharisees and Herod demanded a sign from Jesus, proof that they should listen to him and change their approach. And he said, no, no sign, no, no proof. Basically, your mind is already made up and you're not going to change it. I got nothing left to say to you. So as of yet, in verse 16... The disciples, it seems, haven't absorbed that caution. They haven't processed the bad effect of the yeast of the Pharisees or Herod. They aren't realizing the yeast effect and the caution. They're wondering about bread. Point three, Jesus 
asks the hard questions. The first feeding had 12 baskets left over when 5,000 were fed in an Israelite area. They had seven baskets left over when the 4,000 were fed in a Gentile area. They didn't see the connection with the Israelites and the Pharisees and with the Gentiles and Herod. They were not yet realizing the point of Jesus' address to the Pharisees in chapter 7, or the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the opening of the ears and tongue of the deaf, and the mute and how it's all setting the stage for who Jesus is. So Jesus is aware of their conversation, and he asks them why they're having it. That should be a clue to them that they didn't understand his warning. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, but you failed to see, and ears, but you failed to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? You see, Jesus is asking them the hard questions, and that's hard to do to ask someone why they're having the discussion they're having. To ask them if they can't see or hear. Up to this point, they had been asking, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. His own family thinks, maybe Jesus is crazy. The Pharisees sense he's not the real deal, and they want proof. And everyone is trying to figure out who this Jesus is. There's a shift here in Mark from the first seven chapters to the rest of the gospel. Jesus has three years of ministry on earth, and this is a pivotal point in that ministry. The shift from the first seven chapters moves from people not understanding who Jesus is to him showing them who he is. He has three years of ministry on earth, and this is a pivotal point in that ministry. The disciples must understand his approach and be warned against the wrong approach. But more importantly, they need to open their eyes and understand who Jesus is. They need to open their ears and hear and understand what he says. The gospel that he preached. The gospel that Mark has written down for us here. The gospel that he preached that salvation is by repenting. So many are, are hard on the disciples, like, like they didn't understand this. But weren't they just out preaching it? Chapter 6, verse 12, they were preaching that people should repent. I think they got the message of Jesus. I know they heard it. They even parroted it. And I don't want to say they were talking heads for it. That seems too shallow. But I think they had at least some grasp on the message of Christ. But perhaps they needed to understand what it didn't mean. Maybe they needed to know that the gospel breaks all barriers of established religion. Maybe they, like us, they could have even known that. But as of yet... They hadn't fully understood it. They needed a divine intervention to be shown. The gospel is completely and wholly different from anything you've ever seen before. The power of it looks like weakness. It looks like Jesus hanging on a cross, not Jesus, a Messiah with a sword who's ushering in the kingdom at this moment right now. They needed to understand who he is and who he is not. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of preaching that you need to have light and heat, that you have to reveal the truth, but not just relay the facts. The Spirit has to move, too. Adversely, you can't have only passion and no truth. You can't claim everything is of the Spirit and then live or walk in a way 
that is opposite of the truth. And so you need both to illuminate only the laws and rules and the truth of them, and not to mention grace or mercy in any way that is spiritual or real, and mention them in passing as addendums, to mention them only as tack-ons to the theological reasoning of the law, falls short of the reality of experiencing the love of God. It falls short of the type of expression that makes us say, really joyfully, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the sons of God. Or the honest, heartfelt singing of the song, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. We sing the hymnal version today of this song. In the groaning out of, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. It's First Peter. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is asking the disciples if it's real to them. Don't you see? Don't you understand? You have ears, but you can't hear. And all they would need to say is no. Can you help us? I can't do it. Can you help me? One short example before I close. At Awanas, the kids were playing dodgeball, and if you catch a ball, one of your teammates gets out of jail, they get to come back and play on the team. And I was remembering when I was in Awanas as a kid, every once in a while the leader would yell, jailbreak, and we all got to run out of the jail and back on to the field. And then with Joe this last week, Uh, I was reading with him from Timothy Keller, and we read, we should not be abashed or threatened. Try to remember that you're at odds with a system of beliefs far more than you're at war with a group of people. Basically, remember, we're not at war with flesh and blood. But Keller said, rather remember that contemporary people are the victims of the late modern mind far more than they are its perpetrators. And Keller said, seen in this light, the Christian gospel is more of a prison break, more of a jailbreak than a battle. It's less about the two approaches, which we do need to realize and be cautioned of. It is more about being questioned. It's far more about realizing who Jesus is. And for those who have repented and accepted Jesus for who he is, or for those who haven't, point one, we need to realize both the right heart and the wrong heart in terms of approach to Jesus. For those who have repented and are his disciples, point two, we need to take caution. Watch out for the rule-bound traditions and watch out for desires and their yeast, which is to have no place among God's people. And lastly, we need to have our consciences pricked. We need to be asked the hard questions, the real questions. We need to be asked about the reality and living of the jailbreak of the gospel. We need to be reminded our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not even against sin. We are overcomers. 1 John 5, 4-5, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The answer is obvious, but it takes divine intervention, a moment from God, a moving of the Spirit to convict. 
for those who see this message as foolishness to instead have their hardened hearts turn soft. And God is the only one who by his spirit turns hearts of stone into living and soft hearts that can see and hear and understand the intervention of his son to forgive sins through faith and repentance. Who is the gospel for? For just believers? For just churchgoers? Is it only for the unsaved who need to hear it? Or should the Christian live in the reality of the gospel and frame their lives by the truth of God's justice, mercy, love, and grace? Philippians 1.27 So then, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The truth of the gospel is meant to pour out of you. As Ephesians 5 says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. And when we go back to the old ways and we live in systems of rules or desires, we are quenching the Spirit. When we don't let the gospel overflow and be evident to the world, we're quenching the Spirit. The world needs to know this gospel message, yes, but they also need to see it experienced. They need to see and understand why they need it. They need to hear and have their heart, have their ears opened so they can understand it and come to Jesus, come in repentance, humbling themselves in the sight of the Lord so that he will lift them up. And we need that too, humbling ourselves and listening to the Spirit, not just knowing the gospel, but having it be real to us. The reality of seeing and hearing and understanding and knowing who Jesus is so that it pours out, as we say, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. Let's pray. Father, we pray and we ask for your spirit to move. We ask that when we share your gospel, that we would share it, not just the truth of it, but that we would ask for your spirit to move when we do it, that we wouldn't repackage the product and sell the American dream, but that we would come to you in humility, asking for your help as we share it and as we live in a manner worthy of your gospel. We pray and ask for your spirit to convict those who haven't heard your message when they hear it, that you would turn their hearts soft and receive your message. We pray for your blessing. We pray that we would humble ourselves in your sight and that if we don't, that you would humble us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Number 6, 24, 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you.